Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter, Fiction Category Manager at Booktopia. And I'm sitting here with Sarah McDueling, who is the Children's Category Manager. But more importantly, she's a crime fanatic and a, <laughs> a judge on the Ned Kelly Awards this year. And we are delighted to be back in the podcast studio, sitting across from Michael Robotham. Welcome. Thank you, guys. Great to be here. And um, your new book that we are sitting in front of and... Um, we've got a huge pile to sell. Um, heading out the door is Good Girl, Bad Girl. Um, would you like to tell, tell us just a it. little bit about <laughs> that book? It's the start of a new series um, with a new hero and a new mystery. Um, it's, a, it's a book. It's a psychological thriller. I'm not getting away from my roots mm. really. It's a new psychologist, a, a man called Cyrus Haven, who, who makes a brief appearance in The Secret She Keeps, uh, which is two novels ago. But now he's he's centre stage in this one. He's a damaged, he's a damaged individual. He's in his early thirties, but he's a sole survivor of a family massacre that killed his parents and his twin sisters. So he's the boy who survived, and um, and I guess he's trying to make sense of his life, and he's become a psychologist in a bid to do that. Um, but the other main character who narrates the story of Good Girl, Bad Girl is Evie Cormack, who is. In a children's home when we first meet her and she claims to be 18 but no one knows her real age, no one knows her real name because six years ago she was found hiding in a room in a house where a man had been tortured to death uh, and she refused to speak about what happened to her or give any details of her identity. She now claims to be 18 and wants to be released and Cyrus Haven is sent into the children's home to decide if Evie is ready and he finds a very damaged, broken young woman um, with a unique, you could call it a gift, Evie calls it a curse, the ability to tell when someone is lying. And um, is Evie's story based on a, a, a true occurrence? I wanted to know this too. Like, <laughs> is I'd never heard the word truth wizard before until <laughs> until this book. Is that... Your word, or is it an existing? Word? No, it's it, it's a, it's a real thing. I mean, some people call them human lie detectors. Others uh, they're known as truth wizards, which I know sounds like something out of Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> now, in in reality, um, you know, there's a I've always been fascinated by the uh, work of a guy called Professor Paul Ekman, who's the world's leading expert on lying, and he came up with a study of micro expressions. This idea that we give almost subliminal little hints, you know, the, um, tiny little expressions that can be picked up uh, and can tell when someone's trying to, to be deceptive. Now, in reality, there are people, about one in 500 people have the ability to tell when someone's lying to about an 80% accuracy. And often they are people that have, have, have spent long, long careers in law enforcement or customs and immigration or the prison service and they're surrounded by people who lie all the time and they pick up the clues. But every so often someone emerges who has a greater ability than that, and that is Evie Cormack. And it's, you know, with this bit I'm not sure whether it's factual. It's certainly been, you know, in terms of its, um, it has been surmised, but it hasn't been proven, you know, definitively, that often people, the people that emerge that have this astonishing ability have come from backgrounds of enormous deprivation and violence where they're not quite sure whether they're going to be hugged or hit from one moment to the next. And that is Evie Cormack's story. She has been obviously 
terribly, terribly abused and no one knows quite what she's suffered because she won't reveal the truth. But that explains her ability to tell when someone's lying. But to complicate matters a little bit more, because, I mean, let's face it, if you create a main character in a crime novel that can tell when someone's lying, <laughs> mm. you are likely to about to write the shortest crime novel <laughs> in history. Um, but to complicate matters, Evie is a compulsive liar herself. So even though she can tell when others are lying, she cannot lie straight in bed, which means nobody believes her when she does try to tell them things. Um, so she is a very damaged and complicated character and she and Cyrus, uh, the sort of, they are going to be the characters that lead me into a new a new series and this Good Girl, Bad Girl is the first book in that series. It's That's such terrific. a good beginning. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say, you know, keeping it spoiler free, these are two fascinating characters and um, there's still so much I want to know about them having read the full book. Mm. Like I still have a million questions. <laughs> I know, it's one of those things that you, and I hope readers, I mean, there is a mystery to be solved and you learn a lot in this book, but you don't learn everything mm. about Evie. You're going to have to wait. I mean, I, the book, I didn't have enough words. I didn't have enough, you know, the book would have finished up being, you know, a thousand pages long if I'd told her full story. No, you've got to leave readers wanting more. Yeah, <laughs> and that's, uh, and there are going to be some, I know, I think all the big reviews out of America have been stunning and the trade reviews, and they've all said, oh, please, please, please get the next one out soon. We yes. want to know what happens, you know. Speaking of the next one, <laughs> is, is that likely to be the next book that you come out with? Yeah. Well, do you, you write ahead, don't you, to <laughs> publication? Um, do you usually keep a book ahead? No, well, well not really a book. I'm, I'm about, I'm probably 70,000 words into, into the next book. It's actually been very complicated. I mean, in a perfect world, I would have written the next book mm. before I published this one. Because, you know, I've had to plant, I don't plot in advance, so I've had to put clues in the first book and they're set in stone now. <laughs> I have to live with them. I can't go back and change them. And there are times when I go, oh, I wish I could do this. And I think, no, I can't. Um. You know, so I've, I've sort of, um, it's a difficult thing in a sense to write a second book, um, which so much of it, you know, I've, you know, I've had to plant little clues and I can't change those. Well, it's a fascinating challenge. I mean, um, the first Joe Lachlan came out um, 2004, I think, um, and that's now gone on to become one of the most well-received thriller series of the century. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> and now you're uh, developing a, a, a fresh um, protagonist in Cyrus. Um, that's a that's a huge challenge, I guess, and it's probably very exciting. Is it invigorating it is. for you as an author? I mean, I know you've had standalones along the way, but to have someone else in the driver's seat? No, it is, I think. And I know that when I announced, when I wrote The Other Wife, the, you know, my last novel, that, that that was going to be the last of the Joe Lachlan series, I know that a lot of long-time fans were quite sad about that. But <laughs> Myself I, included. Yeah, <laughs> I created a use by Dad. I gave him early onset Parkinson's because I never intended Joe to be part of the series. I think I, I told you this when I was, was here last, you know, that there's a limit to what I could do with Joe physically and... Uh, and so I did want to start with a fresh character and I thought Cyrus has that wonderful vulnerability. I think there's a moment, there's a moment in the book, which is one of my favourite scenes, which I, won't, which I won't reveal now, but it's the moment when Evie, as damaged as she is, realises that Cyrus isn't a threat to her because he's more damaged than she is. I you know, know that moment. Yeah, and that's the moment when I thought this is the relationship that, you know... Um, 
And I think, um, you know, I think the difficulty in writing writing the first book was in a sense that um, that you know I wanted to spend so much time with with Evie and Cyrus, and yet there was another mystery. There's the the death of of Jody Sheehan, a young budding champion ice skater who is found raped and murdered. I mean, that's the mystery because that Cyrus is trying to sort of help the police solve. Um, and that's an important part of the story, but I kept saying, but I want to get back to Evie. I want to find out what happen- what's happening with Evie. And I'm sort of hoping readers won't be too well, – well, I mean, they'll be drawn, obviously, to Evie and Cyrus, but they'll also want to know what happened to Jodie and, and to, to see Cyrus solve that case. Oh, definitely. I yeah. think both elements have balanced really well. You should always be wanting to get back to the other side of things, which I think you very much – I felt reading this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the things you're – you seem to be praised for the most is an ability to um, measure out and um, apply tension in your novels. Um, is that uh, a muscle you've sort of built over f- about fifteen years of thriller writing, or or do you find it's it's um, it's becoming harder to um, find new material and, and keep engaged with it over time? I think it's it's one of those things. It's it's I draw upon. I didn't draw upon a, a huge background of having read much crime and thriller stuff. Um, I draw upon, you know, my own, you know, everyone's been an experience, had an experience of, you know, I'm a parent, you know, mm. where I've lost sight of a child in a supermarket or they've gone missing and and that sheer unmitigated terror that, you know, I, I, my, my then seven-year-old decided to hide from us in a French supermarket and this was a two weeks after Madeleine McCann had gone missing in Portugal and it was the biggest, biggest story in Europe. And suddenly when your seven-year-old goes missing, I mean, it was the most terrifying and she was hiding on purpose, you know. Mm. Not a popular lass uh, <laughs> after that. Um, but I draw upon that and I think... I think it's hard to write, it's hard to twist, create twists that readers don't see coming because they've read so much and watched so much TV. So I think the real, I mean, it's true that there's very little that hasn't been written before. Um, Very few plots that haven't been, you know, um, that haven't been tackled before. And I think that the trick is to create compelling characters that readers like and then put them in jeopardy. And if mm. readers have fallen in love with your character and you put them in danger, then straight away the reader is on the edge of their their seat, and and um, that's I think that that is the that is the, the the trick to to creating you know tension and suspense to create conflict, drama, put them in jeopardy uh, to the point where, you know, I once said to someone, you know, what you do is you you know you create a character you apps the reader absolutely loves, and then think to yourself, what is the worst thing that could happen there? <laughs> true though like a a good twist is only a good twist if you don't see it coming and the the only way you don't see it coming is if you're too busy and too wrapped up in the story yeah otherwise i mean yeah and the thing is it's almost now people are so well versed i mean i'm sure sarah you're like this because you read a lot of crime you know there's going to be the obvious twist and you know there's going to have to be the second twist because the first twist is so obvious and therefore you know the second twist is probably going to be a third twist. I mean actually to the point where I think some TV crime dramas that I've watched over the last few years have one twist too many. It's almost like they just sort of jumped the shark. Yeah. They, they had me. They, the third or fourth twist was enough but when they decide they have to put one final one in, I'm, I just go, oh, now, now you've lost me, you know, now. Because it becomes too far-fetched. Then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Where I think, um, 
you know, I think you need just enough where the reader is satisfied. You don't need, and you don't need to have fooled everyone. You know, I think, you know, some of my favourite, you know, one of my favourite crime novels of all time is Mystic River by Dennis Lehane. Now, I picked that, picked the villain in that very early, but the writing was so brilliant and the characters were so beautifully drawn. I didn't care. I didn't care that I knew who the killer was. I just wanted to spend time with the characters and to see mm. what impact that that crime would have on their lives and how, you know, whether marriages could survive and whether friendships could survive. And I think that's enough at times, you know, because someone, you know, will always, doesn't matter how clever you are, someone, someone will, will always say they picked it. They, they will always say they picked it. And, and sometimes they will and sometimes they won't. And sometimes, and, you know, um, you know, but you can't, you can't possibly fool that. And if, to fool everyone normally means that you've had to make the outcome so random <laughs> and, you know, out of, the, out of left field that you, you upset most people saying you didn't give us a chance. You didn't give mm. us a chance to possibly pick that. I'm so glad to hear you say that, Michael, because I'm on a worldwide mission to prove that spoilers don't matter. Yeah. <laughs> because if the story is good, yeah. it doesn't matter if you know what's coming, you should still be invested and still be able to enjoy it. Yeah, no, I, and I completely agree with that. I think... Um, you know, I think that's what comes down to. Whereas, if a book, if a book solely succeeds on the fact that if you don't know what happened, that a spoiler would destroy the book for you, then it's not a very well written book. Yeah, then it's just a cheap trick. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. You're exactly right. Uh, Michael, you got your, um, uh, I guess, part of your origin as a writer was in the um, writing features for the Mail on Sunday, and um, you went on from there to do a lot of ghost writing. Um, there's um, a, a, a huge breakout in Australia of um, new crime writers at the moment and um, among them are Chris Hammer and Jane Harper and they both have their start in newsrooms as well. I'm just wondering is, do you think that's a happy accident or has the, the sort of the career of journalism given you an economy of words or a wealth of material that... Um, yeah, I, I, look, it's really interesting. I was talking to someone about this the other day actually... Um, I mean, most journalists I met when in you know when I you know was working wanted to write a book. They wanted to be novelists. A little part of them, and a lot of them do. It's amazing how many of them talk about it and don't. Though um, I think journalism is a tremendous profession for for gathering material. I mean, you know, as a young you know growing up in small country towns, I had nothing to write about. Journalism gave me you know sent me all around the world and, and, and introduced me to so many you know, suspenseful, dramatic, you know, conflicts that I gathered in enormous amounts of material. And ghostwriting taught me how to capture voice, you know, mm. to, so perfectly, um, to create characters that live and breathe as though they're real people. Um, so I think, you know, there is no doubt, I think, I know, as you know, publishers love journalists because we can make... We're used to making deadlines, you know. Yeah, that's from a publishing point of view, they love that because the number of people they take on, you know, and they say, look, we'll deliver a book by, you know, next year sometime or whatever and suddenly, you know, three years pass and the book's still not done. <laughs> Whereas journalists are normally pretty good at making deadlines. Um, but I think, you know, it's... Uh, but by the same token, I actually, I thought journalism would be the perfect um, profession to go into wanting to be a writer um, a fiction writer, and I was wrong. Because what tends to happen, if you're a full-time journalist, you are spending 24 hours a day, or when you're not, even when you're sleeping, you're thinking of your next story. And you're doing something creative. So 
the idea of writing in your part time, and most let's face it, most writers, most novelists work, you know, write in their part time. They've got a full time job that they have to do, you know, to to pay the bills. If you do, if you do something creative during the day, then it's very hard to have any creative juices left at night. You know, and it's funny. Even George Bernard Shaw, going all the way back, he said the best career to have if you're going to be a writer and write in your spare time is to do something incredibly mindless or um, repetitive, like, I don't know, be be a postman. I'm not, this is going to disparage <laughs> postman here. I'm really sorry. I hope I'm not upsetting postman. But do something where you can keep your creative energy for, for that evening when you've got a bit of time. But if you spent all your day being creative in your job and then get home and expect to have still have some... Some, left. <laughs> something left. Yes, that's hard. So, I'm not. I don't. I think it's a great profession to gather material. I'm not sure it's the profession to come out of if you want to have work as a journalist full time and have something left mm. at night. It's a good crucible, and then you go on. Yeah. Do you miss it all? Would you ever? Um, um, look, for many, many years, every time a major event happened in the world. Because I knew so many, having worked, you know, on Fleet Street in the UK and mm. and all around the world, really, and I knew a lot of the journalists covering those events. Um, I used to a little part of me wanted to be there, and I'm still a complete news junkie. I wake up every morning and I check the headlines. You know, if I wake up at four, if I wake at four in the morning, I have to go onto my iPad and see what the headlines are around the world. Um, but the moment that ended for me, that desire to be there was nine eleven. Um, that I, I suddenly that event shocked me so much, and I realised I had no desire to be there. I had no desire to cover that story. I was just horrified. I actually thought that no one would ever want to watch a movie or read a book again. That the world had changed so fundamentally, there was no pleasure or joy to be had anymore after that. It was, you know, it would just shock me to my core. Uh, and that's when I knew that moment. I knew the journalism was out of my system. But up until then, whenever there was a major event, I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great to be there covering that? Is it true that you were in Moscow and the Kremlin opened up at the fall of the Soviet Union and there was yeah. papers coming out of archives? And Yeah, no, I was one of the, I was the first Western journalist into given access to the Moscow State Archives when the Soviet Union sort of crumbled and... Um, I Hitler's notes on Stalin, or something. Yeah, well, it was, wow. it was, it was uh, the Nicholas. I mean, Island. Stalin's notes on Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, it was Stalin's Hitler files because the Soviets were first into, or not Soviets, the Russians were first into Berlin at the end of the Second World War, and they got to Hitler's bunker, and Stalin refused to believe that Hitler, his great enemy, you know, uh, could have taken the coward's way out and committed suicide. So he had all of Hitler's closest aides and. Uh, and uh, imprisoned in Lubyanka in Moscow for six years and interrogated daily. And he gathered the probably the most comprehensive account of Hitler's life and his predilections right down to his sexual predilections um, ever put together. And, um, and I uncovered those, including the top of Hitler's skull with a bullet hole still in it and the bloodstained oh sofa that... Hitler committed suicide upon with Eva Braun had been broken up and the fabric and wooden spars had been wrapped up and you could unfold those that were still stained with blood and um, it was all there, yeah. Wow, that's, that's like the anti-Shroud of Turin. Yeah, it was the... Um, and, and then there were the Nicholas and Alexandra 
love letters and photo albums and the children's diaries, all of which, you know, the Rasputin files, the Chernobyl files. It was a complete treasure trove. Would you ever write nonfiction again, Um, history or true crime? Uh, I mean, you're onto um, a good thing, so I don't want you to change. Yeah, no. You know, people often ask would I ghostwrite again if the right person sort of came up. I mean... Probably not. I mean, I you know, so. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, I'm really proud of the stuff I did as a journalist and some of the stories I covered. But um, I don't know whether I'd go, I'd go back there and do that again. But no, saying that, you know, maybe if the right story came up, if the right story came up, it would completely intrigue me. You know, um, I would. But at the moment, I think the stories I'm coming. I mean, all of my stories are seated in real life events. You know, all. Um, I, you know, even even the the murder of of Jodie Saunders in Good Girl, Bad Girl. I mean, I wanted to explore because of a particular crime in the north of England that I covered as a journalist, where a young a young schoolgirl was murdered, and she was portrayed as all media invariably do as being this straight A student, you know, perfect daughter, much loved, you know. Um, and then when they began unpacking her past that she wasn't exactly so you know that idea of the little red, you know, the portrayal of the little red riding hood snatched from the lonely footpath by the big bad wolf you know um but the fairy tale wasn't quite true you know um and they discovered that she had a secret life and i wanted to explore that in, in good girl bad girl no oh, thank you for um you know giving us this fantastic story to read and now we have um cyrus and evie to um uh, a new one to look yeah, at. Yes. <laughs> You've really <laughs> whet our appetite for um, so much more. And um, uh, thank you for making the journey out here and talking to us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks, guys. And you can buy Michael Robotham's Good Girl, Bad Girl. Anywhere books are sold or online at booktopia.com.au right now. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.